open study night. I've got one question. Uh, I didn't get any further questions or additional questions from anyone. So for next month, if you want to do an open study, I'm depending on you to generate some questions. Uh, this one question, I've kind of, I've kind of expanded on it a little bit um, to fill out our time. And of course, if we if we end early, you can uh, feel free. If you think of a question tonight, I'll be glad to see if I can tackle it before we're done. But let's do pray. Father, thank you for the grace just to be together and to open your book together and to study your word together. We trust, Lord, that each time that we approach our time of study together, that that you're ready, willing, and able, Lord, to apply your word to our hearts by your Holy Spirit who dwells within us, that you are more interested and more committed to our growth than we are ourselves. And we thank you, Lord, for that commitment on the part of your Spirit. Thank you for working in our hearts. Thank you for continuing to cause us to grow up in Christ in every way through the agency of the influence of your word. Amen. All right, let's turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. And I'll share the question that was asked, which is based upon a single verse in Acts 2, and that's verse 17. I'll read starting in verse 14. This is, of course, the events of the day of Pentecost. I think we're mostly familiar with the events of that night, or excuse me, that day, and um, the significance of those events when the early church uh, was first filled together with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other languages as the Spirit was giving them utterance, and then all of this spilled out into the street as the city gathered to find out what was going on, and Peter stood in the midst. That's where we'll pick up in verse 14. But the question is going to be generated from verse 17 when we get there. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. There's actually quite a bit in verse 17 that's interesting, but the specific question was this. How or why does the Lord say that he pours out his spirit on all flesh? Isn't the spirit only received as a gift after repentance? The person that was asking this question was reading through the book of Acts, studying through it, came across this verse, and the statement in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, raised the question in their minds, in their hearts, as to whether the Lord was saying that um, in, the, in the fulfillment of this promise, God was going to just pour out his spirit over all humanity, that everyone would receive the spirit. But that, of course, raised a red flag for them, which is, but I thought the spirit was only given to those who have previously repented and are in right relationship to the Lord. Now, the answer to this is not that complex, but it does raise an interesting interpretive point in terms of it's a good opportunity for us to, to uh, in a sense, uh, use this as a, 
a practical example of how to do good biblical interpretation in our own readings through the Scripture. So I thought that's what we would use it for tonight. Uh, First of all, there is a point in this that is somewhat easy to misunderstand because we have a certain familiarity with terms before we read them in the Bible, and we tend to, as we're reading through a passage like this, we tend to import whatever familiarity we have with the key terms that we're reading, rather than reading those key terms as the writer is using them, we tend to use those terms in our own understanding based upon just what we're familiar with. And the two key terms here are the word flesh and the word all. Okay. Now, flesh here can be interpreted one of two different ways. It can either mean the flesh of an individual human being. You know, we all live in bodies of flesh. We all have our own individual and distinct physical bodies. And so it can refer to us as individuals. Or flesh can also, in the Bible, refer to... humanity as a whole, and it can also refer to sin in terms of the physical body in its, in its corrupted elements based upon the influence of sin. So what we have to do when we're reading a passage like this is we have to do a quick check of the variety of possibilities instead of just assuming that we know exactly what the word flesh means in this circumstance, it could mean different things. And the context of the passage is going to instruct us as we're reading it as to which one of these meanings we're going to assign to the word. So I'm going to leave those possibilities up there for just a moment, and let's talk about the second possibility, or the second key word. As it says in, again, let me read again, verse 17, And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Okay, now all can refer to all individuals. And it can also refer to all groups of people depending again on the context. Now, if the word all, in this case, and this was what was raising the question that was confusing the person that that, uh, was studying it, if the word all in this case refers to all individuals, then what is our conclusion about what the Lord has promised in regards to the outpouring of His Spirit in the new covenant, in the last days. What has he promised? If he's saying it's going to be poured out on all individuals, then what? Believers. All individuals includes subcategories of believers, because we're individuals, and a subcategory of unbelievers. And as a result of that, our conclusion would be that the Lord is promising he's going to do something really dramatic, something really unusual, something he's never done in human history, in that 
in some sense, in the last days, in this new covenant era that's being introduced by this event of the day of Pentecost, that everybody, without exception, is going to receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon their lives and upon their hearts. And the result is, because even though we're only focused on verse 17, verses 18 through 21 give us a list of expected prophetic results of what he promises in verse 17. So what the Lord has promised in verse 17, the promise is the outpoured spirit. Give me a couple of the uh, expected results of whoever it is that receives this outpoured spirit in the verses that follow. Okay? The expected results are prophecy. Not just generally someone is going to prophesy, but the people that receive the outpoured spirit are going to be the same people that will prophesy. Visions. Someone said dreams. And we're not just talking about the general sense here of the normal dreams that everybody has when they go to bed at night. We're talking about message dreams, spiritual dreams, specifically dreams in which the Lord is communicating to people for redemptive spiritual purposes. Okay, so prophecy, visions, dreams, and these are all in the plural, meaning it's not just one single unusual experience, because I believe in a special circumstance, God can and has in history given an unbeliever a spiritual dream. Could you think of any biblical example? Pharaoh received a spiritual dream. Later, King Nebuchadnezzar, who definitely did not know the Lord at the time, received a spiritual dream. Now, he didn't know the interpretation of it. Pharaoh didn't know the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar didn't know the interpretation. The Lord used that to connect him to a prophet that was going to then be exalted in a, into a greater position of influence and authority in the kingdom. But nevertheless, he gave the spiritual dream to the unbeliever. But it was unique. It was, a, it was an unusual experience. It happened one time, as far as we know, in Pharaoh's life. It happened one time, as far as we know, in Nebuchadnezzar's life. This indicates there's going to be some kind of ongoing activity, the plurality of these events. They're going to prophesy. They're going to have visions. They're going to dream dreams more than once. Tells us that there's going to be a new spiritual experience in the lives of everyone that has received this promised outpoured spirit. That indicates to us that for sure we're not talking about unbelievers. We're talking strictly about believers and only believers. So, the context of the events that follow the promise in verse 17 support and guide our interpretation to re-examine the emphasis of the use of the word all and the use of the word flesh. So that when he makes this promise, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, he can't mean, he can't be promising that I am going to pour out my Holy Spirit in, a, in the kind of relationship that you and I have with the Holy Spirit on every single human being in the world. And that as a result, they'll, 
their regular experience in one way or the other is going to be things like prophecy, visions, and dreams. This has to be restricted as a promise only to the believers. Now, is this a valid interpretation in terms of how the Bible uses terms like all? He's pouring out his spirit upon all flesh. Yes, because as I said, the word all can mean either all individuals or it can mean all groups of people. So, with those as our only two real choices of interpretation, I'm opting for the second interpretation and I'm saying that what the Lord is actually promising here in Acts chapter 2, and this isn't introduced in Acts chapter 2, this is from Joel's prophecy in the Old Testament, and Peter simply, by the Spirit of God, repeats it and reaffirms that this is the moment at which this is going to begin to be fulfilled in history, that what he's promising is that he's going to pour out a Spirit not on every single individual, irrespective of their relationship with the Lord, but he's going to pour out his spirit on all groups of people. Now, what do we mean by that, all groups of people? Because believers are a group and unbelievers are a group, right? So if we're, we're right back to the same problem, aren't we? Because if he pours out his spirit on all groups of people, doesn't that mean that he's going to pour out his spirit on unbelievers again? The answer is no, it's not being poured out upon the unbeliever. So all groups of people doesn't mean all without exception. It means all groups of people in some different sense or some different context. So who can help me here with what different sense? If I refer to all groups of people, but I'm not referring to believers and unbelievers as groups, I'm referring to groups in a different context, what would be the most fitting way to understand this promise? David? Okay, so all groups like in the ancient world, in the world of the people that Peter was addressing, and he was addressing on this day a Jewish audience. This was of all the people that gathered together. It says on the day of Pentecost that they gathered from every nation, but they were all Jews. Why do we know that they were all Jews? Because they, it says so in the text, but also they were there on the day of Pentecost for a Jewish feast. So the Jewish people that lived in these different nations all came together. They're the ones that are gathered to hear this message. So Peter, by the Spirit, is saying to them, this is a promise. This promise of the outpoured Holy Spirit in the new covenant is going to change something that God never did before in the Old Testament. And that is he is going to pour out this special blessing of a special new relationship with the Holy Spirit not just upon the Jewish people, but he's going to pour it out upon all people, all flesh. All flesh includes these two basic categories in the Jewish mindset, Jews and Gentiles. So really, all groups refers in this specific context to two groups. Because in their worldview, the Jewish people, as they looked at the world spiritually, they only saw two groups, just like you and I only see two groups when we look at the world. We see groups not of Jew and Gentile, we see groups of believer and unbeliever. But they, as it was originally addressed to them, saw the world in terms of you're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. 
If you're a Jew, it's because you're in covenant with God. If you're a Gentile, it's because you're outside of covenant with God. And the only way you could get into covenant with God was to be circumcised and to embrace Judaism. Now, this promise is to say God is blowing out the boundaries of that way of having a relationship with his spirit, and he's establishing a new guideline. This is going to be a blessing that's going to be poured out upon all flesh, Jewish flesh and Gentile flesh. And it's not going to be based upon their flesh. It's not going to be based upon this. It's going to be based upon their spiritual condition. It's going to be based in the new covenant, of course, as we understand, upon their spiritual relationship with the Messiah of the covenant, the chosen one, on their spiritual condition of salvation. And so if they're in right relationship with the Lord, they will receive this outpoured blessing of the promised Holy Spirit. Whether they came into that relationship with the Messiah starting out as a Jewish person or whether they came into that relationship starting out as a Gentile person no longer matters. All that matters is that they receive the Spirit through that relationship with Christ Jesus. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, now let's look at a little bit of the broader context to just confirm that we're on the right track with this. Look just back, or uh, just forward a few verses. We're still in Acts chapter 2. Same person is speaking. This is Peter. And this is how Peter concludes the message that he had begun back in the verses that we were reading. Looking down now at verse uh, 37, it says as a description of the events as Peter was finishing his message. It says, now when they heard this, all the people that were gathered to hear Peter speak, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. All who are far off even includes the Gentiles. Now, what Peter is saying here is he's clarifying and making sure they don't misunderstand that when he's referring to all flesh and the Spirit being promised to be poured out upon all flesh, He is including the Gentiles, but only those Gentiles that meet the qualifications. The qualifications are simply this. Repent, be baptized. In other words, become a believer. And for everyone who goes through those steps, whether they started as a Jew or whether they started as a Gentile, no longer matters. If they repent, if they believe the gospel, if they're baptized they will receive the same promise of the Holy Spirit. So, we can know with certainty that the all that's being used in this context is an all of a smaller context, all of a smaller category than every single individual of the human race. Now, let's look at another passage. This is over in the Gospel of John now, chapter 14. And let's read 
the teaching of Jesus on this same subject. This is on the final night with his disciples just before he went to the cross. And so we're talking about now some some, uh, 50 days approximately before the events of the day of Pentecost. So this is in the near past for Peter, James, John, and the rest of the disciples. And in John chapter 14, Jesus taught about the coming Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit. I'll read verses, chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. Jesus said, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. All right, now, we need to apply the John 14 principle to this to make sure that our interpretation fits within the boundaries of what Jesus taught about the coming or the outpouring of the promised Holy Spirit. Jesus says that he is going to, in in a passage just before this, he says he's going to be leaving, but he's not going to leave them alone. He's going to provide a replacement, another helper, who is going to be with them to help them spiritually to grow and to be the kind of people that God wants them to be. And in order to receive this, he places one single boundary around the identification of who is qualified to receive the Holy Spirit and who is not. What is that boundary? He says, whom, he's speaking of the Spirit, the world cannot receive. Now here, we have another interpretive issue, and I'm not going to veer off too far on this. I'll just, you, I'll just mention this, but we have to also interpret the word world here because the idea is, of course, we're all in the world in one sense, aren't we? Believers and unbelievers, people that receive the Spirit, people that don't receive the Spirit. We're all in the world, but world itself is a word which can mean world as a physical planet, or it can mean world as a spiritual system, an organized system. And in this case, Jesus is clearly referring to world not as a physical planet, or else his statement would mean no one can receive the Holy Spirit ever. So he must be referring to world as a spiritual system, which divides the entire world's population into these two basic categories. It divides it into those who are in right relationship with God and those who are not in right relationship with God. And so he's saying that those who are not in right relationship with God cannot receive the Holy Spirit. And so we're back to our same interpretation and both the uh, words of Peter later in this same message on the day of Pentecost and the words of Jesus in which he taught just a few days before this both confirm that we're on the right track here that what is meant by this prophecy is not that everybody is going to receive the Spirit, but only those who repent, those who are in right relationship with the Lord, those who are no longer spiritually considered to be in the world. Okay, anybody have any questions about what we've done with the word all in interpreting what it means that the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh?
Okay, so what I thought we would do with the rest of our time is use this as an example, and if you guys are up for it, what I thought we would do is uh, do some, like, um, coursework together. What I mean by that is, like, if we were doing a class together on the subject of biblical interpretation, there's part of classwork is to just have lecture me telling you what to think about different topics, but the the goal of a biblical interpretation class is not just to know what to think, but to know how to think, to know how to arrive at the right conclusion when you encounter verses like this for yourself. So what I want to do is I picked out a list of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven examples. And these examples fit into only one of two categories. The two categories are this. Categories in which the word all means all. And then the other category is when the word all means some of all. And depending upon which category you put these cases in, it will radically affect the way you interpret these passages. It will affect your conclusions for each each one of these passages. You'll end up either with the right interpretation, or you will end up with an error, and you'll misunderstand, misapply the Scriptures. And anytime we misapply the Scriptures, misunderstand the Scriptures, you know, we're, we're heading in an unhealthy direction. Some are worse than others, depending upon the, the, uh, the topic that we're misunderstanding and misapplying, but all of these are certainly in the important category. So let's do this. Let's, let's look at a few of each kind. Let's get to first in the Gospel of Matthew, and I'm going to ask you to, if you brought your Bibles, to turn with me to these, and I'm not going to tell you right up front what to think. I'm going to hopefully help lead you in how to reach the right conclusion on these examples. But hopefully we'll reach the right conclusion together. And you'll just have to trust me that I'm putting these in the right category in my own readings, or else I'm leading us all astray. All right, Matthew chapter 13. We're going to look at a parable. The parable is in verse... 31, the mustard seed parable. He put another parable before them. Obviously, Jesus teaching his disciples. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in the field. It is the smallest of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants, becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. That's your whole parable. The word all occurs two times in this passage, and it occurs in one case in a way that has come down through, you know, church history as a very famous example, the mustard seed example. So the statement that Jesus makes in teaching his disciples is he's using the example, like all parables do, taking some example from natural life and the world around, this case, a, you know, a plant example, a gardening example, 
It's an example of the mustard plant with its seed, and he makes a statement. The statement is necessary in order to make the point that he's trying to make in the parable, and the statement is simply this. The mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. Now, which category are we going to place this use of all in? All means all, or all means some of all? All doesn't help me. (laughs) All means all, or all means some of all. I need either some of all or all of all. Some of all? You're saying all of all? Okay, we've got a disagreement here. We've got a disagreement. We've got to, we've got to do some work here because here we are, all members of the same church. We're all reading the same Bible. We're all reading the same parable, and we're all drawing different conclusions. <laughs> okay, I like that. The mustard seed is not actually the smallest seed in the world. Poppy seeds are one example, and there are many examples of seeds that are smaller than mustard seeds. Not just one seed is smaller than the mustard seed, not two, not three. There are dozens of different plants that produce seeds that create new plants when they're planted that are technically, actually, scientifically smaller than the mustard seed. It's this issue, as small as this issue is, get it, small, mustard seed, small, it's this issue that has actually caused problems for some Christians who happen to know the reality of the natural world through scientific study, that there is such a thing as a smaller seed than the mustard seed, and they read a statement like this by Jesus, and they go, oh, I can't trust Jesus because he was obviously wrong about the mustard seed. And if he doesn't know about the mustard seed, how could he know about me or the world or God? Things much bigger than the mustard seed. So I'm going to put this in the all doesn't mean all. If we're talking about all without exception, all in a category including everything, it's all means some of all. Well, what do we mean by that? All right, well... Parables function a little bit differently than some other uh, methods of teaching, modes of teaching. And what should become obvious as you study through the parables, we'll get to this in more detail when we eventually reach Matthew 13 in our study through the gospel. But parables are not focused, just like, for instance, the book of Proverbs is not focused. And there are other portions of Scripture in which God is communicating to us through other means than technical precision in which he is using an example from the world around us to make an important spiritual point. And as long as we understand the context of the point that he's making, we're not meant to get hung up on the technicalities of whether when he says the smallest of all seeds, our minds are racing to check him on his facts to see whether there might be another seed that's actually scientifically measured slightly smaller than the mustard seed. That's not the point that he's after here at all. So in what sense, though, is it some of all in which he's making a valid point and he's not really violating any important principles of communication? The context is 
in Palestine in those days in farming out of out of and I'm going to just write all this on the board so you get the point okay out of all normally planted seeds for farming the mustard seed was the smallest does that make sense Jesus isn't concerned about poppy seeds He's not concerned about, like, whatever else. I mean, they're just, like I said, there's dozens of smaller seeds in the world around us. In other locations that are not actually used for farming, that are just, you know, as part of God's creation, you know, they, they drift through the wind and they fall and they, they, they plant themselves. But in terms of, of ancient Israelite farmers who were doing the work of farming, and considering, what am I going to plant for my crop this coming year? Mustard was one of the considerations. It was one of the possibilities. And out of the entire list of things that a Palestinian farmer might plant, mustard was indeed the smallest of all of those seeds. So it's not all technically of all, but it's all of some of the larger category, the category that he's focused on, which is the people that he's actually making the point to. Now, how do you know that, though, when you're just reading along? Well, here's the thing. You have to, in passages like this, when the question rises in your mind, you have to consider things like history, culture, what was going on in the world around him, the people he's speaking to, how they would understand the point that he's making. One of the biggest errors that Christians in our generation who read the Bible tend to make on issues like this is we read the Bible from the perspective of our experience, not the perspective of the experience of the people that are actually being spoken to and those those passages were directly addressed to first and foremost. It doesn't mean that it doesn't apply to us It doesn't mean that it doesn't speak to us. It just means that it speaks to us secondarily. It speaks to them first, directly, and primarily. And then we derive the principle from it so that we don't get hung up in the technicality of the mustard seed not being the smallest seed. And we say, well, what was the point he was really trying to make here? And he certainly did make it effectively. He's making a point of comparison between two things. A very tiny seed out of of all chosen seeds to plant, which would produce a very large and fruitful plant. And he is making that comparison in order to teach them a lesson about the nature of faith. All right. And it does certainly make that point. All right. That's one example. Let's look at another one. We're also in chapter 13. This one is one of the other parables. This is verse 44 one of the shorter, smaller parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. All right, here's a man 
that discovers a treasure hidden in a field that's making some point about the kingdom of heaven. And this man, in his joy of discovering the treasure, desires to possess or own the treasure. But instead of stealing the treasure, attempting to get away with that, what he does is he goes and purchases the field in order to acquire the treasure. Now, in order to purchase the field, what does he do? He sells all that he has. Does, in this case, all mean all or all mean some of all? (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Okay, this one is a tough one. This one is both, but we have to get each one in its proper order. First, I'm going to go with David's answer. It first, on the practical level of the parable, is teaching that he sells some of all. Why? He didn't sell the clothes he was wearing, walking around naked, holding a treasure. He would be kicked out of society. Well, no, that's important. It says all. That means every single thing, technically, every single thing you possess. If I say to you, look, I've, I've got this great investment opportunity. I'm selling everything I've got in order to buy into this investment. You don't ever think that I'm selling literally everything that I've got. Literally. You automatically understand that I'm selling what? Most of what I possess and most of any value. It's just understood. You would think I would be crazy if I literally was going to sell everything that I possessed in order to go and purchase this field and acquire the treasure in the field because then I would be a homeless person. I'd have the treasure, but that's all that I would have. But spiritually, it makes a point in which he does sell all. All in the sense of all that has any meaning in the context of the point that's being made. Because here, the, the point here isn't about fields and treasure. The point is about the kingdom of heaven. And there's some issue about the kingdom of heaven that's being conveyed here. You've heard me teach on this before. You may remember, you may not. But I believe that this parable is actually describing the actions of Jesus, not our actions. And I'll explain this in more detail when we eventually again again get to Matthew chapter 13 as to why I am absolutely convinced this is describing the actions of Jesus. So in what sense does he actually sell all? In the sense that it's referring to his life. This is a reference to the cross. If this is describing the actions of Jesus and accomplishing the mission of God, then in order to accomplish this, he had to die. He had to go to the cross. He had to, in that sense, sell all. Now, here's the important thing. Jesus, when he went to the cross, didn't technically sell anything. It wasn't selling anything. He didn't, you know, hold a garage sale before he went to the cross. You know, and I've got this nice, uh, you know, what... What's the, what's the garment? It's, yeah, but it's, it's like a, 
It was, a, uh, it was described using special uh, descriptions, and this is why the soldiers um, gambled for it. Seamless garment, thank you. Remember, at the foot of the cross, the Roman soldiers actually you know, threw dice in order to try to acquire this garment because it was a, it was a unique and valuable garment. It was a seamless garment. It wasn't just, you know, uh, sewn together different pieces of cloth. It was very expensive and very, you know, very valuable in that context. Obviously, before he went to the cross, he could have sold that and purchased some cheaper garment to wear to the events of the cross itself, but he didn't. He didn't technically sell anything. So it's a reference to the sacrifice of his life on the cross. And in the sacrifice of his life, the question is, did he withhold anything? Did he save a single breath, a single beat of his heart, or did he sell his entire life, spiritually speaking, in the sacrifice of the cross? And absolutely, he sold his entire life. So, in order to properly understand and interpret the parable, we have to understand the first layer of the physical impracticality of selling all, that's not what it's describing. It's not understood that way by anyone even in that ancient culture. But spiritually speaking, yes, it references or represents a sacrifice of his entire life. Okay? Let's look at another one in Matthew. This is Matthew 19. Verse, we'll read from, um, oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. No wonder, it looks strange. Okay, we'll read from um, verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty, Will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven? Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then could be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Okay, that's our key statement. With God all things are possible. How many of you have quoted that verse you're familiar with that verse. You've seen it in a promise box. You've, you know, you've meditated on it. You've prayed using that as your, your text for prayer. You know, how many of you are familiar with this statement? With God, all things are possible. Okay, does all mean all, or does all mean some of all? <laughs> Most definitely some of all. All of all would be heretical, and we'd all be kicked out of Christianity for believing it. God, it says in the Bible, I appreciate Tim's piping up because this is exactly the point. The Bible says God cannot sin. It also says God cannot lie. With God, all things are possible, except... He can't sin and he can't lie. He can't violate his own holy nature. So not all things are possible with God. Just all the right things are possible with God. Now, if you're going to narrow this to the, possi the human possibilities, 
Does that then change the equation? What I mean is, let's leave God out of it for a moment, just what God could do for us. Are all things possible for us with God? As long as it's not violating the principles, purposes, plans, and will of God. For instance, if I said to myself, with God all things are possible, I think what I want to do is I want to fly to Jupiter. Just myself, no spaceship, I want to fly to Jupiter. With God all things are possible. Well, could God cause me to fly to Jupiter? He could, certainly he could. I mean, he took Paul the Apostle directly to heaven. That's much more difficult than taking me to Jupiter. He could do that, but he's not going to do that. I will never fly to Jupiter, ever. So in that sense, not all things are possible. Is it possible for me to deny Christ, deny the resurrection, deny the deity of Christ, deny the validity and the integrity and the inerrancy of God's Word, deny the Trinity, deny that Jesus died for my sins, deny the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and still have everything hunky-dory between me and God. But with God, all things are possible. Okay, so we're meant, when we read a passage like this, and the only reason I'm emphasizing this is, I grew up in Christian circles that took verses like this and didn't understand the context of what was being said and made it mean something much more than what is actually meant to be understood by the statement. That all things are possible means whatever you want. As long as you want it, it's possible with God. No, that's not true. Within his will, within his plan, Within his purpose, as long as we're not violating his standards, his principles, his holiness, his righteousness. With those boundaries, and there's a set of them, with God all things truly are possible. All right, so this one has to go into the sum of all. Right. Okay. Next one, also in Matthew, um, chapter 22. And we'll read verse 40, a key teaching of the Lord Jesus. I'll read, uh, I'll read a little bit of the context. Let's start in verse um, 36. It's a man who came to Jesus. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Now, we could do this with the three uses of the word all there, but I think that's pretty obvious that all is meant to mean all in those cases. I'm choosing ones that are a little more, bit more difficult to understand. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Verse 40 is my question. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Does all mean all or does all mean some of all? I know, I know. Just be bold. All definitely means all. 
all the law and prophets depends on this one core principle. What Jesus is doing here is he's, teach, he's giving us a way to, to go back and reread the first five books of Moses and all of the prophetic books and to understand them in the way they were always meant to be understood. He's saying that if you, and this is the mistake that the Pharisees made, if you read the book of, like uh, Maria was just recently reading through the book of Leviticus and she had some questions about the book of Leviticus. We were talking on the phone the other day. If you read the book of Leviticus or any of the other portions, but Leviticus is very difficult to understand and it requires a lot of extra study work to, to get to the right answers. If you read the book of Leviticus and you don't read it through the lens of what he just said here, which is, this is what the law is really all about. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you don't understand and hold those two principles in your perspective as you're reading Leviticus, you will misunderstand what you're reading. Because all of the law and all of the prophets depend upon those two core principles. Those two core principles sum up the Ten Commandments and the Ten Commandments, as we've talked about many times before, sum up all 613 individual laws of God, and they're all teaching us this basic principle of right relationship with God, right relationship with one another. And that right relationship is characterized as a love relationship. And so all, without exception, in other words, can you find any one of the 613 laws that doesn't depend upon that principle? No. There's no third category to interpret those 613 laws. They're either laws that teach us how to love God or they're laws that teach us how to love our neighbor. And that's it. Now, when you get to the prophets, you might say, well, they have a completely different message than, you know, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, and the 613 laws. No, they don't. They have the exact same message. Now, they're phrased differently because of different circumstances, and they're based upon what has previously been communicated, but they're communicating the same two basic principles. It's, it's calling people back to that core love for God and love for their neighbor. All most definitely means all in this case. All right, let's look at another one. Matthew chapter 28. This is the last one in Matthew. This is the uh, famous Great Commission. Verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We have three key uses of the word all in verses 18 through 20. The first is Jesus claiming that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. The second is his instructions to go and make disciples of all nations, and the third is uh, the importance to disciple those nations by teaching them to observe all that he has previously commanded his disciples. I'm just going to you know, help us here for the sake of our time and say um, all three are in the same category. So all mean all or all mean some of all? Okay, number one, which is? Okay, does Jesus 
have truly all authority? Is there, is there just a little sliver of authority outside of Jesus in this creation in which we exist? No. I mean, there are people that have authority that are not named Jesus, but it's all delegated authority, meaning it ultimately all comes back to his throne. On the day of judgment, they'll give an account to him, not to someone else. So he has ultimate all authority. And of course, when he says to the church to go and proclaim the gospel, carrying the gospel to all nations, is he referring to all of a smaller group of the total nations on the face of the earth? In other words, the church can look at it and say, okay, well, he doesn't mean, you know, like the Chinese nation. He doesn't mean the, you know, the, the, the Hindu nation. He means just the nations of people that are open to receiving the message. Now, clearly, the, the, the Great Commission and why it's so great is it's a mission to reach the entire world, to reach every single nation in that world. And then the third one is, of course, he is instructing us not just to bring the gospel to them, but then to follow up that evangelistic message that saves them with discipleship instruction that actually transforms them. And our responsibility is to teach them all that he taught his apostles. So we're not, we're not at liberty, like uh, a famous figure in, uh, in uh, American history, Thomas Jefferson, who, uh, because he wasn't happy with certain parts of the New Testament, decided to publish his own version and literally ripped pages out of the New Testament and republished it because uh, he just wanted the parts of the teaching of Jesus that he was actually comfortable with. And the rest, you know, went right out the door. We don't have that liberty. So clearly, all authority... All nations and all instruction is all. All means all. Okay, let me give you quickly two more examples, and we'll end with these tonight. Um, Colossians chapter 1. There are literally dozens of these just on the word all that we could look at, but for the sake of time, we're already getting to the end of our time here. Colossians chapter 1. This is one of my favorite ones. Colossians 1, I'll read. Starting in verse 22. It says, He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Okay, Paul makes a statement here about ministry of the gospel that's occurred at some time because he's using a past tense reference. He's describing something which has occurred at some time prior to the moment of him writing this letter. And his statement is, It's a bold one. He says, The gospel which you heard, or that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Does all mean all, or all means some of all? Has to mean some of all. Why do we know that? Well, Paul wrote this letter somewhere around maybe 60 A.D., 
give or take a year on either side or so. And by the year of 60 AD, the gospel had gone out into the entire world in one sense. In another sense, it hadn't reached most of the world yet. So how can we be accurate and say the gospel had already been proclaimed in the entire world, and in another sense say it hadn't been proclaimed in most of the world yet? Because both statements are true, depending upon how you understand world. If world is, as the readers understood it, the Roman Empire, which ruled the entire world, that gospel had already been proclaimed throughout the Roman Empire by 60 AD. doesn't mean every single individual without exception has heard it, but it does mean the entire empire had been exposed to the gospel. Every major metropolitan city had received a proclamation of the gospel, and there was a church that was established in those locations representing the Lord in that sense. In the more technical geographic sense, the gospel had not yet gone to China. It had not yet come to the Indians in South America and Central America. It had not yet reached Southern Africa. It had not reached the Indian continent by 60 AD. It had not reached even certain parts of the, the northernmost parts of modern-day Europe. So, is Paul lying here? Is he exaggerating? No, he's referring to all creation not in a physical sense, but in the sense of the world as an empire, as an organized system. And in that sense, the gospel had reached the entire Roman Empire. So we read passages like this, and it can be somewhat uh, conflicting and confusing for us if we're importing our own understanding of what all creation means. You have to read it in the context of what's going on at that time. All right, this last one, and I'm just going to give you this one because we're already five minutes past our time. I'll let you guys go, and I'm going to go see if my nose is still bleeding. I know, but some people have to get on to other things and get ready for tomorrow and whatnot. Second Peter chapter 3. This is also one of my favorites, but this one is somewhat difficult. It's, this one isn't easy. This was not easy for me when I was first studying it with this question in mind. Second Peter chapter 3, and this is a salvation issue. And we will read starting in verse... Uh, let me read from verse 7. But by the same word, this is the word of God, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist... This is exist after the flood of Noah, are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." All right, I won't go into this one tonight. But what I want you to consider, maybe, uh, you know, maybe next week, just before we start the normal Bible study, maybe we could tackle it for a minute. Does all in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, refer to all, or does it refer to some of all? And consider, consider it in the context, look at the key terms, 
and uh, we'll tackle that together next time, all right? God bless everyone. Thanks for putting up with my...